0: I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. We will pick up our study through this book at verse 22 and continue through the rest of the chapter. Christian History Magazine makes a bold statement about uh, an individual uh, in looking at people who have been of influence in the history of Christianity that magazine, a uh, pretty good authority on Christian history, uh, says that after Jesus and Paul, Augustine would arguably be the most influential person in the history of Christianity. Not bad to be ranked number three after Paul and Jesus. Well, you've heard me mention a number of things about Augustine in, in uh, years gone by, but I want to grab just one element of his life that will lead us to the text really the context of his life. Augustine lived uh, the late 300s and into uh, 400s. He was the Bishop of Hippo, North Africa, if you know something about your church history, and wrote all kinds of things. But in particular today, uh, I just want to comment on how he lived at the intersection of, of shifting cultures, uh, major rising and falling of civilization. In fact, Rome, of course, not only the city but the the empire, was, was falling in his day. Jerome, the, another famous guy in the old days, said this of the, the sacking of Rome. He said, if, if Rome can fall, what can be safe? Well, indeed, uh, in Augustine's life, uh, the, the pagan hordes, of course, stormed the city of, of, of Rome, burned and sacked the city, the Eternal City, they called it at the time and, of course, since. Um, shocking everyone. 900 years of an empire, and down it goes. Well, among the things that, that Augustine did, of course, he lived another 20 years after that big event and wrote all kinds of things, but one of, his, one of the books that he wrote, treatises that he wrote, is called The City of God, The City of God, which he contrasts with The City of Man. And interestingly, part of, part of the, the, the deal in The City of God, that, that, that little book or treatise he wrote, uh, he was, it was an apologetic uh, because there were those who were saying that Rome fell because of the rise of Christianity in the latter, the latter decades, uh, there were those saying because people quit worshiping pagan gods altogether, they started worshiping this other god Jesus that that 's why Rome fell, and Augustine in the city of God said no no that 's not it that 's not why Rome fell Rome fell because of because of immorality it wasn 't it wasn 't the rise of Christianity. Well, he contrasts these two. Empires. Okay, that's the part I want to grab. Just a, a huge moment in time. I want to grab that and, and come to the text today. Because in Matthew 12, you see as well the, the violent collision of two empires. It, may, it might not look as much as you read, but it's going on in the life of Jesus. And in this text today, um, a collision of, of faith and unbelief. And there's, there's a moment we're going to look at, some things happen, and then Jesus talks about it. And I, I, I put it all into the heading today, the danger of indecision. And I, I want to continue that theme from the text to us today, because there is then and there's now a danger of indecision. People often like to, to sit on the fence. We like to, to always learn a little more, a little more, a little more, without making a, a full-on, wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ. And this text, as Jesus speaks to the crowds then, it speaks to us today to say, hey, if you're trying to ride that fence, now get off the fence. No, no, get off on the side of faith and trust Christ. That's, that's really the, the, uh, one of our big takeaways today. But um, the other element that I, I want to highlight, then I want to pray together and, and start reading God's word. But there's a clash, there's a collision in the text. And there is also in our own hearts, isn't there, often a battle taking place between two opposing forces. You know, the, the, the draw, uh, because we're sinners, to do things and think things and say things we ought not. And that pull of the Spirit of God to do right, to submit to him. There's, there's often a collision in our own hearts. I want you to think about that as well. Let me pray for us and let's take a look at the, at the text. Father, how good it is to come as a church family and to open the Word of God and to, to ask you, by the work of the Spirit of God, to just impress it on our hearts. Lord Jesus, you, you said many occasions, be careful how you hear. And so today, we want to be careful how we hear as well. That is, not just hearing to get information, but hearing with a view to our heart, being drawn to Christ. And, changed and humbled by your work and it is that that we seek today our father not not simply information well that's good too but information oh father that will lead us to jesus so we we bring ourselves today as worshipers to hear the word of god to love it and respond to it so do that work in us i pray today in jesus name amen on the study sheet you have in your bulletin, there are always a number of things, reminders of where we have been in weeks gone by, and then uh, we usually put in there a little paragraph about today's text, and you'll see there uh, a repeat of a statement from uh, D.A. Carson, a good theologian today, just, just talking about the section of Matthew in which we find ourselves today, chapters 11 to 13, which he highlights as a, as a place where there's rising disappointment and controversy, opposition to the work of God as evidenced in the, in the person of Jesus But I want to come then to verse 22, and if you glance ahead to where we're going to go, there are two sections I'm going to look at, both of which I put under headings with a a question. Uh, What shall I do with Jesus the Christ? I've stolen that, borrowed. Did I say stolen? Terrible. I didn't steal anything. I borrowed it from the words of Pontius Pilate in Matthew 27. A text we'll get to uh, in, in a few months. What shall I do with Jesus the Christ? That's really the idea. I want to start by reading 22, verses 22 to 24 and then just want to paint the picture a little bit about what's going on here. So here's the, here's the occasion for all that follows, the rest of the text built on these three verses. We read this, Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, that's Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed. And they said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Okay, stop for a moment. Here's the occasion. This is the moment. What follows from here to the rest of the chapter kind of flows right out of this this little conversation. Now, I want you to think with me about the personal elements. Sometimes in the Bible, you have a story told, and you you get the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And you forget there are real people hidden behind the facts, So there's several people I'd like to think with you about. First of all, it says a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. Well, let's think about him for a minute. How long had he been like this? Do we know? Not at all. Uh, Three problems, really not two. We often think about the blindness and inability to speak. Well, That's significant. But the text specifically says demon-oppressed. That's a real problem, too. The text does not tell us the connection uh, between uh, being blind and mute, if that was caused by the demon, if there had been some other uh, element take place physically. A lot of things we're not told, but he's a real person, isn't he? How long he's been in this place of struggle, we don't know. But can you imagine being him just for a moment, buffeted inside, unable to express yourself, unable to interact with the outside world by sight? Not a good place to be. Well, somebody loves him. How do I know that? Well, somebody, I mean, I'm assuming they love him. They brought him to Jesus. This is somebody's dad, somebody's son, somebody's brother, and somebody is bringing him to Jesus. Now, we don't know, again, how long he's been in this situation, but somebody who has heard of the work of Jesus, could could he heal, my friend? Could he give us back our brother or our son or our dad, whoever this is? Maybe they've kept him locked away in a house. Maybe he's been protected and never left alone. We don't know a lot of these details. But somebody brought this guy and said, maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus can fix my problem. So I, I take that as an act of love. Somebody, somebody loves this man, I, I'd like to think. Now, they bring him, and the text is just very brief. They bring him to Jesus. Jesus heals him. Can you imagine He just—he heals him. This is astounding. If anybody else could have fixed him, they'd have fixed him long ago. Nobody else could fix him. Jesus, Jesus heals him. Okay, what's going on in his heart now? Come on. What's going on? I mean, this is okay, right? I'm sure he's calm and cool and collected. Suddenly his blind eyes are opened and his mouth is freed and the demons are gone. And suddenly something like that is going to go on. Those who brought him, what are they doing? They're saying, well, this is, this is okay. Thank you. No, baby. I don't know their theology, but if they could dance, they're dancing. There's, there's, there's some kind of an eruption of sound. You know it, don't you? What's the crowd doing? It's just people. You just know this. The crowd. I can just imagine small towns. This is New York city, right? Some possibly knew this guy. They might have, oh, there's, you know, whoa, that's a real, real problem. Uh, I've been in a mess for a long I don't know. But Jesus heals it. And imagine the way a crowd works. There's a ripple going through the crowd. It's electricity. People go, oh, did you see that? The guy's talking. No, seriously, look at that. Did you see? Hey, grandma, did you notice? Look at this. They're poking each other. And there's an electricity in the crowd. And somebody is saying, could this be the son of David? That's a big deal. Son of David, now you've just been, you've been with us through Christmas time, you know this is 2 Samuel 7. This is a messianic deal. This is fulfillment of scripture. Hundreds of years old. So when they say, could this be, they're saying, could it be? God has visited his people. Could it all be true? I mean, this is a big moment. Wow. Now, that's one side excitement, joy, enthusiasm, singing and dancing. Then along comes verse the people in verse 24, the Pharisees, the people we love to hate, so to speak, uh, the foil, uh, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, different ones that show up in the gospels as the joy suckers. You know what I mean? If it's possible to have joy, they're going to come along with the big vacuum cleaner and suck it right out of you. That's verse 24. So this excited crowd, they come along and I, I use that analogy because I think it's pretty real to what happens sometimes. Uh, people are erupting with enthusiasm some comes along and goes, okay, stop that now. Right. Put the smile off your face. Get the joy gone. We're going to suck the life right out of you. He's with the devil. Like, well, hey, thanks, guys. Way to just ruin the whole moment. Now, of course, this isn't a new allegation, is it? If you stayed up with our uh, preaching and you're reading through the gospel, you know, uh, word for word, it's right out of chapter nine as well. latter part of chapter nine, you find a similar circumstance. Jesus does something amazing. And along comes somebody to say, yeah, he's working with the devil. Like, wow, is that the best you've got? Well, in this collision, though, uh, is a collision of belief systems. No, no less stark and powerful than that which Augustine kind of watched when it came to empires. But this is, this is a big moment. Who, who is Jesus? Is, is he indeed the promised Messiah, son of David, the one who will shortly, as the text unfolds, die on the cross for our sin? satisfy the wrath of a holy God so you can be forgiven and go to heaven? Is that who this is? Or, or is he in league with the devil? How you answer that is a really big deal. So these, these two responses, by the way, it's a big deal in Matthew. Uh, it, it shows up a lot in this gospel. Other gospels do it too, but Matthew a lot. Just, just setting one response to Jesus in contrast to another very sharply. Some say yes, and others say, no, I don't think so. I won't have it. Well, Jesus responds. I want to start reading again, verse 25. This is Jesus' commentary on this. All right. All the flows from here to the end of the chapter is built on what we just, what we just read. So here then, the words of Jesus, verse 25, knowing their thoughts, then, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's just drawn the lines. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, get off the fence. Whose side are you on? All right, can't have it both ways. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. Wow. How can you speak good when you are evil for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks the good person out of the good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak for by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Wow. We'll stop there for the moment. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? Jesus confronts that truth-sucking, joy-sucking response of the Pharisees by saying several things. On your study sheet, several things I'm going to comment on if you want to just take a look at that. I mentioned already that this account highlights the varying responses of people to Jesus. It does that in a very, very powerful way. The common people astonished the religious leaders accusing Jesus of being in league with the devil. You see the term Beelzebul, uh, Lord of the Flies, you could also translate that. Uh, it was a Philistine god, small g, of course, and slang, I put it, slang, common word on the street, another way of referring to the devil in league with the devil. That's, that's enough on that. But that's what they're accusing him of. Now, Jesus points out the absurdity of their accusations, basically by saying, oh, come on now, why would Satan cast out Satan? It's, that's not the way it works. And by the way, when you all try to cast out demons, who are you working for? If you all try to cast out demons, don't you come looking at me who actually does it successfully and say, I work for the devil, when you're trying to do the same thing and you can't do it. He's just pointing out some basic logic. Um, which I think is kind of interesting. Verse 30 kind of brings it to a head. Whoever is not with me is against me. One who does not gather with me scatters. He, he's bringing it to a head and saying, in a sense, who do you say the son of man is? Jesus asks that of his disciples a little later, Matthew 16. Am I the son of David? Am I the promised Messiah? Who do you say I am? Which side are you on? He's calling people who like to sit on the fence to get off the fence and make a declaration. What do you believe? What do you say? Well, put a little statement down there before I'm going to step in a moment into this business of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and never being forgiven. I want to talk about that. But before I go there, I want to just remind you of this. The stakes are very, very high on this topic. This is a big deal about who Jesus is. Jesus is explained in the Bible, son of God, savior, second person of the Trinity, left the glory of heaven, took on a human body. Christmas we celebrate this, the incarnation. Lived a perfect life, a life you and I've never lived. Perfect. Righteous. Died on a cross where he Absorbed the Father's wrath, paid for it all in our place, rose from the dead, lives today so you and I can be forgiven by God. It makes a huge difference what you believe about Jesus if you believe what I just said or not. Now, let's be clear. (laughs) Jesus did not die a cruel death on a Roman cross to be one of many possible ways to be forgiven by God. Can, can we just settle this? How do I know that? That's a big deal to say because I know it's very popular to say that Christianity is one of many ways to be forgiven by God. And I'm just calling it out as nonsense. And I'm basing it on a couple things. One, the cruelty of the cross. If there was another way for you to get to heaven, don't you think that God the Father could have just said, okay, if you can get there by earning it, just it's on you. Be nice and I'll see you on the other side if you make it. No, there is no other way. The Bible says it very clearly. Acts 4.12 is one of those. No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But I also take you to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus, in those moments before he went to the cross, sweat drops of blood. Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If there is any other way for the wrath of God to be satisfied, can we go that route? If there's any other way for you to take people to heaven, I mean, just tell them to be nice. You think you can do that? No, by the way, is the answer. Perfect, perfect? I don't think so. Not for five minutes. Try it sometime. Sit alone in a room in complete darkness and try to be nice for five minutes. Not one God-dishonoring thought. Loving the Lord your God completely with every beat of your heart. Just try it. You're not going to make it to five minutes without thinking some, something. I don't know, unless you are so much better than me. Five minutes won't get you to heaven anyway. Oh, Lord, we need your mercy. So I'm saying this. Uh, you can't get to heaven by earning. And if so, God would have just said, y'all behave now. See ya. Now, I want to talk about this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I've been asked over the years a number of times by people who say, I'm really worried about this. I'm concerned that I've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. My goodness sakes, what if, what if at the end of it all, you know, heaven's door slammed in my face and somebody, you know, angel or Peter or somebody says, sorry, remember when you were 14? Uh, you, you, you did it. You know, what's this all about? Well, there's a lot written about this, and I'm not going to walk through you know, pages and pages of material. I'm going to go straight to what I think is right and let you kind of wrestle with that. And I like the way D.A. Carson succinctly puts it. And so I'm going to go there. I happen to agree with this, and I'm going to amplify it just a, a little bit as well. Verse 32 sets those two right up against each other. Uh, And Carson would say this, the first sin, that first part, um, speaking uh, a word against the Son of Man, he says can be forgiven. Carson would say that's a rejection of the truth of the gospel uh, up to a point where there's still repentance and forgiveness. Where a person says, no, 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 I don't believe it, I don't believe it, I don't believe it. And then the Spirit of God so works in their heart that they come to a place of repentance. They say, oh my goodness, my eyes are open. I see Jesus. Know I'm a sinner. Trust Christ as my Savior from sin. Forgiven. Now, the other half, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Some people see this as only possible in Jesus' day. But Carson would put it like this. Rejection of that same truth in full awareness. In full awareness that You are thoughtfully, willfully, and self-consciously rejecting the work of the Spirit. And he would look back at that miracle in verses 22 to 24 that we started with today, where these guys are, listen, they're standing right there, and they see the amazing work of God. I mean, right there, right in front of your eyes. You have no other explanation. And due to sheer hardness of heart, you stick your arm in the chest of God, the Holy Spirit, and say, I'll have none of it. That's the idea. Willful. Eyes wide shut, saying, I won't have it. Fully and finally saying, forget it to God. Now, here's here's what I have said to people who say, I'm afraid I've done that. If you're afraid you've done it, you haven't. Now, I'm I'm not serious. Because that afraid that you've done it, is that conscience, that work of the Spirit of God in your conscience that says, but I want to be right with God. No, I do. I long to be okay with him. I want to be in God's presence. Okay, that's not the heart of a person who has done this. The heart of a person who has done this says, and I don't care. That's this. I, I, stories I could tell, but I, I remember a moment. These, these, You know these. There are moments that just rivet themselves on your soul forever. And I, I remember one such moment, I was called to the hospital, family uh, over uh, in, in another place, another ministry, who had a family member dying, who they knew had no interest in God. And big problems medically, intensive care on his way out. So I went to the hospital, got my way into ICU, and he, he was clearly uh, not well. And um, I identified myself, he did not want to see me. You're some pastor guy, but you know, a very profane response. And I said, Hey, listen, don't worry. I won't take a lot of your time, but here's the deal. The Bible says that very soon you're going to stand before God and you don't want to stand before him apart from Jesus. And I started giving him the gospel and he, he, <laughs> he, he rolled over with his back to me in great pain to make a statement, which I heard loud and clear and I finished it and it didn't take long. And it said, sir, uh, you got a short time left. If, if in these moments you can cry out to God, if God, if God so works in you, would you please, please don't enter eternity apart from him. And I left and two hours later he was dead. Now, I don't know if that's where he died, right? Who knows? Do you know? No, but five minutes before breathing his last did, did his heart crack and him say, Oh God, what am I doing? I don't know. But that turning of the back, I think that's what Jesus has in mind. That turning of the back that says, I'll have none of this. Eyes wide open, fully and finally rejecting Jesus. If, if you're concerned today that maybe, you, boy, did I do that? You know what? That, that conviction of heart, I think, is an evidence that you haven't. And what you need to do is come to Christ today and say, oh, God, I believe. Forgive me of any unbelief in my own heart. I want to be a follower of Jesus. And the Bible assures us of forgiveness of sin. So come, if that's you, come. Don't run the other way. That's the best I've got on that. I've got a lot of other books and pages you can study if you like, but I think that's good for the morning. I want to go to verses 38 to 42. There's another group of people, another response yet. Not only the two back in verses 23 and 24, but another. Now, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him. They're saying, so remember who's talking now, scribes and Pharisees saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Different conversation, probably. Then he answered and said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So to the request for a sign, Jesus gives back scripture. He does. He gives them back scripture. He talks about Jonah and then of course the people of Nineveh specifically and uh, the queen of the South as described here. You can find those stories in the old Testament, but I find it interesting that Jesus does not say, Oh, you'd like a sign. Surely you'll repent. If I give you a sign, uh, let's see, what shall we do? He doesn't do that. Does he? Uh, instead he gives them the word of God. He refers them to scripture. Now, Put on your study sheet. Don't misunderstand the point here. There is a time for what Acts 1-3 would talk about, many convincing proofs. Okay, that's re- referring back to the work of Jesus, if you read the, the context. There's a time for being ready to make a defense, give an apologetic, First uh, Peter 3. There's a time for those, things, giving an answer, so to speak. But But ultimately, please get this, no one is argued or coerced into God's kingdom. You know what I suspect here? If Jesus had done some sign, you know what they would have said? Show me another one. And another one. And another one. No end to signs. Jesus was doing quite a few. They could have come and seen any of them. But instead, they were, in a sense, asking Jesus to do one now for me. Oh, surely I'll believe. And Jesus looked at him and said, no, you won't. No, you won't. You could see all kinds of things happen right now. You haven't believed anything yet. So so don't give me the nonsense about if I just saw, I believe. No, you wouldn't. Which, by the way, is true for you too. Jesus gives him the word of God. He gives him scripture. Look at Jonah. That's the sign I'll give you. Now, Nineveh, what's interesting here, you got a whole city in rebellion against God. What does God do? Does he send a miracle worker? No, he sends a preacher, a preacher of righteousness with the assumption And the accountability for it, that people will hear the preacher and apart from signs, repent and be saved. Which indeed happened in the story of of Nineveh. Jonah, of course, you read the Old Testament, you find that. God sent a preacher, a preacher who preached judgment and, and righteousness. People did repent. They responded in faith. That's Jesus' point. Hey, you guys are asking for a sign. Well, guess what? That's not always the way God works. Jesus was doing all kinds of things to prove his identity. But he wasn't, I call it here, the, the miracle worker de jour to satisfy the cynics. That's not why Jesus came, to do what you demand. No, I don't think so. He sent them a preacher and expected them to repent. All three of those stories head that direction. Uh, I put it under the heading, we need more proof. Can you give us another sign? Different responses to Jesus in this text. He's the Savior. He's Messiah, son of David. No, he isn't. He's in league with the devil well, I need a little more proof. I got to think about this a little longer. By the way, some of you may be in that category, right? I know that that's always true. There are always people who say, I need a little more. And to that little bit more, I I do understand if you don't don't get the story of the gospel, you should hear the story of the gospel. But having heard it, no, you actually don't need any more. What you need to do is get off the fence and trust Christ as your savior. See, I need a little more. Ah, you know what? Not so much. Come, come, come to him. Come to him. Now, I want to look at verses 43 to 45. And I put the rest of the chapter underneath my heading on the study sheet of response to God's word. 43 to 45 says this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house Empty, that's a key phrase. Finds the house empty, swept, put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil in itself. They enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this generation. What's this all about? What's this all about? Here's the way I understand these three verses. I think Jesus is talking about those who who God graciously intervenes in their life. And like in this case, cleans up the mess. But having the mess cleaned up, Ultimately, they want nothing to do with Jesus. That is, clean the house. Help me get out of my problems. I I find that, especially in verse 44, where it talks about the house is now empty. Jesus hasn't moved in. There's not a welcoming of him. In fact, you're about to get in worse trouble than when you started. And as I have in your study sheet here, I, I, I comment on what I call the uncomfortable truth How many times we want Jesus to rescue us from our problems. No, we really do. Help me with my problem. Fix my physical need. Heal this relationship. Solve the problems in my family. And then having the work of God doing that, we end up saying, thank you so much for solving my problem. I'm gone. And, you know, Jesus comes along and says, no, hold on. No, hold on. You can end up in worse trouble than that when you started. Jesus didn't come along just to, listen, listen. Carefully, please. We all have stuff we want Jesus to fix. He didn't come just to fix those things. In fact, can I give you another uncomfortable truth? You get to think about this. Many times the things that we want God to remove are his gifts to keep us dependent on him. Because I think this, if you didn't have that weighty problem for which you come to God every morning and say, oh God, help Would you come to him in the morning and say, oh, God, help? Would you come to him in the morning? Or would you not? I reference here, 2 Corinthians 12, where the apostle Paul just talks about his thorn in the flesh for which he prayed three times that God would remove it. Please take away this problem, whatever it was. Oh, God, remove this. And God said, no. Here's the reason why. I know that if I take away that problem, you will be an insufferably arrogant man. Totally unusable in my kingdom. And we can't have that. And because I love you, I'm going to keep that thorn in the flesh there in your life so that every day you get up, you will say, oh God, without you, I can't make it. In that sense, as with Paul, that thorn in the flesh was a gift from God. Oh, I... I, say this with you again, the uncomfortable truth. Many times we want Jesus to rescue us from our problems, but ultimately we have no plans to submit ourselves to him. Could be true of you. I hope not. I put on your study sheet here, if you're sitting on the spiritual fence regarding Jesus, stop it now. Stop it now. How? How? By coming to Christ as your savior today. And if you're a Christian or you think you are who mainly wants God to rescue you from pain, you keep coming hoping God will fix you. Oh, keep praying. I'm not saying don't pray about your needs. I'm not saying God may, that God may not graciously help you with that problem. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you're mainly coming because you want God to fix a problem in your life and then really have no intention of following him as Lord of your life, repent of that too. And come to him, whether or not God fixes that problem and heals that pain, come to him in faith anyway and follow him as Lord of your life. That's the call of Scripture. I think the result of this, verses forty-six to fifty, welcome to the family of God. I think that's the idea. Brothers and sisters are coming, half brothers, half sisters coming to speak. He says, "You know who my real family is? My closest, my closest friends. It's not just my biological family. It's those who are part of doing the will of my Father in heaven." Now, we're going to celebrate communion in just a few moments. And my, my title today for this text is The Danger of Indecision. There's all these responses to Jesus. And I'm, I'm just saying this. This text calls us to avoid that, that danger of indecision by come to a place of decision that says, oh God, whether you fix this or that or don't, I'm going to follow you forever. I do believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin, rose from the dead. I'm hanging on to him today. I don't need another sign. And you know what? Anybody who comes along tries to suck that right out of my life, I'm going to have no part of it. Christ, Christ in him alone. We're going to, we're going to celebrate communion. Now, listen, there are a couple different things that communion does, all right? There is an individual element of this where each one who knows Christ is his savior, her savior, comes before God and, say, and, and says, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sin. There's an individual element, there is, of rejoicing in our salvation. There's also a community element where we come together, which is why as we serve communion in this church, as the guys distribute the elements, first the bread and then the cup, the bread, a reminder of the body of Christ, the cup, a reminder of his blood. But we ask you to hold on to those portions till all are served. And then... We end up taking those together. It's a community element. It's us. We come together to him. If you know Christ, of course, join us in in remembering Jesus. I want to pray for us. The danger of indecision. If you're on a fence today, get off of it. Get off that fence. Trust. Trust Christ. Rejoice in Christ today. Those who are going to serve, come and um, be ready as we finish our prayer. But join me, please. Father, thank you so much for this text. We hear the different voices in scripture saying different things about Jesus. We want to be among those saying this is the Christ, the Messiah, Savior of the world, my Savior. We want to be among them. Father, we hear others around us calling us in other directions. Oh, Father, would you keep us following closely to Jesus, clear in our faith. And whether you remove our particular ailment or struggle or not. Keep us in the place where we say, oh, God, I submit my life to you today. I'll follow you forever. Thank you for the opportunity to remember Christ together today. In Jesus' name, amen.